Hey everyone, Zach Dixon here, and welcome to our 51st episode of Animalators, curious conversations from the world of animation. Today on the show, we have my very good friend, Austin Mann. Austin is a travel photographer and is constantly on the move creating content for today's best brands. He also founded Weld, which is a workspace and community for creative pros. It also happens to be the workspace that IV and Animalators is recorded in. He also dreamt up the world-renowned Shot on iPhone campaign. We'll talk a little bit about that. Um, Austin isn't our usual guest for this show, but I leave every conversation we have inspired, encouraged, and this was no exception. Today on the show, we'll talk about fostering creative communities, large and small. We'll talk about how to face closed doors in your creative career. And finally, we'll talk a lot about pitching yourself and your ideas. Austin is easily the best pitch artist I know. I'm excited to get into all of this and more on this week's episode of Animalators. Austin, thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, I'm glad to be here. It's yeah. an honor. So let's start at, at Weld. We are in Weld right now. What is Weld? Weld is a space and community where creative pros can work together. Uh, it's founded in 2012, uh, really when I was... Uh, talking a lot with my girlfriend at the time, now wife, wow, recently wow. married. Yeah, congrats. And she was living in Austin and I was living in Dallas and I was happily working uh, alone at home, toiling away on my computer. I was getting a lot done, but it's also just a really, I don't know, maybe a, a really safe, comfortable place And um, uh, in terms of my career. So Esther was working in Austin uh, with a small group of different creative pros, like eight to 10. And uh, that office ended up dissolving because no one was really focused on running that office. It was Everyone was focused on running their business, but they all found value in it. And then she tried to go into another place and she was there for like just a little bit. And then something happened with the building and they lost it or something. And she's like, where does everyone work? She's like, all my friends are, uh, you know, working from home and coffee shops and everybody's alone. And the Internet's really slow at Dominican Joe's or maybe we shouldn't uh, <laughs> name uh, the names of our friends coffee shops. But um, uh, I started thinking about it and I was like, you're right. Like, um there isn't really a great place for creative professionals to work together. And I was really thinking a lot about photographers, and both her and I do a ton of travel photography, so mm -hmm. we're on the road a ton. We're, um, I, I didn't put a whole lot of like uh, weight, and uh, I wasn't valuing a whole lot of my like like U.S. or Dallas foundation. Um, but I did, I did recognize that uh, for one reason or another, and I believe – uh, a huge blessing had been um, the community that I had around me had uh, been a really compelling one and I had been able to make friends and um, have mentors and other people that really challenged me creatively and I could recognize that that was huge for my career and I also recognized that not everyone had uh, had those same opportunities. I had worked at uh, you know a really interesting ad agency and magazine and um, and just been able to for one reason or another bump shoulders with uh, really compelling uh, people that inspired me. And so as I looked at that and realized the, the value of that community, the value of face-to-face -face relationships and um, how important that is for great collaborations and, and everything else, I thought, you know, it'd be really great to get a, phys a physical space and uh, invite people in and see where that goes. And so, yeah, it wasn't long after that uh, conversation that I had with Esther where I uh, signed a lease on a space in Dallas and uh, – 
It was uh, really cool. It had been a, a production studio for many years, many, many years. It's, I, I didn't actually know when I signed the lease that the building had been kind of a part of the photography community for like 40 years one oh, way wow. or the other. And three commercial studios in it and really cool spot. And I uh, really just signed that lease with a very uh, lightweight plan. Uh, I had like, you know, spent a bunch of time just brainstorming around what I thought made great workspace and what would be really important in this space. And uh, I had identified three things that I thought would uh, be the foundation of building a great or bringing together creative pros around uh, these three resources. And one of them, the first one was insanely fast internet. Second one was incredibly delicious coffee. And the next one was uh, just great tables and chairs. My theory was that if we can kill it on all three of these things, <laughs> then we will draw out the people that we need and we'll have a great community of creative people. And um, and so I just started inviting friends in. And next thing I knew, we were building a space and a friend of mine's friend was doing our design and a friend of mine's wife was uh, doing our interior design and uh a friend of mine's friend was uh, like one of the best baristas in town, and she was designing our coffee program, and just uh, everything started to compound from there. It's a really magical time. So back then, was it any plans to go to another city? Because obviously we're here in Nashville right now. Uh, pretty quick, actually. So we opened May eleventh, uh, two thousand twelve, and there were a couple of people uh, in town at the time from Nashville. Uh, good friends, Stephen Proctor and Jeremy Cowart and uh, a couple of others as well. And um, that day they were like, we, both Jeremy and Stephen were like, we need this in Nashville. <laughs> and I was like, really? Like, hmm. And I, so I kind of had it in mind. Um, and then really quickly, it was clear that we had, we had built and were building something that was resonating in a really deep way with a lot of people and that we were um, – uh, this community of people together was meeting uh, need and was, um, you know, was like a, a drink of cold water in the desert because everyone at that time co-working as an idea was like just taking off like in San Francisco. And, you know, I literally in my initial pitch decks, I had like the definition of co-working. Really? Uh, like, yeah, like I had to explain it to people when I was trying to pitch like co-working is this thing where people put tables together and they like charge membership and it's a it's a thing and there's a real business for this. And everyone's looking at me like, ah, I don't know. And so um, at the time, you know, it was a very underserved market. I, st I think it's still underserved in the way that we approach it. Um, which is a smaller community that's more focused on the creative professional and really driving resources and people and amenities around uh, creative pros. And uh, so anyway, um, yeah, so I don't remember the question. I got kind of off on it. <laughs> yeah. So the the kind of, not, not slogan, but the like mission statement, I guess, of Weld mm -hmm. is we create better together. Yeah. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I think that uh, one of the hardest things to do in the world, and one of the most powerful things is uh, to lean into the talents and the strengths of others and to know when you're not the best person to make the decision, to know who's best qualified to make this decision on your team and to be able to, to acknowledge that, um, you know, maybe I'm, maybe I shouldn't be doing everything. Maybe I should, what could we do if we had a team of people that were really good at the things that I'm not and that maybe I'm good at the things that they're not and there's so much power in that. So we talk a lot about two plus two equals five, which is basically our non-corporate way of talking about, uh, you know, 
what synergy i would probably be the corporate <laughs> word but that is, it's a real thing and it's really powerful of what can happen when you bring two minds together to dream around the, uh tackling the same problem and if, if both of those parties or you know any number of parties are truly seeking to understand the perspective of the person next to them and lean into their their strengths then you know, I, th- I think you get to a point where you're not compromising to meet each other in the middle. You're creating something greater uh, than you could alone. And um, that's our core belief. And our core belief is that trust is really important. Um, it's hugely important to great collaborations. And we think trust is really built through physical space relationship. And so that's where we have our stake in the ground as a company and as a brand and it's hard to build physical spaces and, uh, you know, it's resource heavy uh, across the board. But it's um, I think it's something worth uh, in a world where uh, digital relationships are flourishing and uh, are certainly very valuable. And there's amazing things about digital relationships. But I think uh, in a world where I've started to sense even myself, um, you know, working from home alone, being very uh, comfortable and content with social media and email interactions, uh, I began to realize that trust wasn't fostered through those and that uh, working together on a daily basis um, to solve problems together face-to-face is what creates trust. And I think that's the foundation of collaborations and collaborations are what um, are changing the world. And so um, for us, we wa- that's kind of our core thesis and, and mission. There was like a little nugget back there that reminded me, talked about like, you know, when, when trying to solve a problem, going out and finding like the person with, you know, the best opinion. Yeah. We were talking about that at lunch the other day. What was yeah. that? There's like a, a term uh, for that? Oh, yeah. It's uh, maybe idea, uh, meritocracy, like idea yeah. meritocracy. And um, what we were talking about at lunch was that and um, a, a connected story, which I was recently on uh, a boat and going to Antarctica uh, for my honeymoon. And we were on the boat for 20 days and we um, we didn't have any internet whatsoever, which was amazing. Um, <laughs> it's, it's a really wild relief and just an interesting thing to experience, truly. Um, you know, I go, I do solo weeks once or twice a year, usually twice, and I'll, I'll unplug, uh, you know, for a solid few days. But uh, there's something that's different that happens when you're up in the 18 to 20 day range, and um, especially when we were we were learning so much because we we'd never been down there. We're learning tons about animals, penguins, and mammals, and glaciers. And what we the probably the single biggest thing that we realized uh, that I still reflect on almost daily was that uh, we didn't have Google and we couldn't ask Google questions. And so what we were forced to do was to find the person that was the best fit to give us an answer on the boat. And uh, our boat was super well staffed. We were down there with uh, Cork Expeditions, and they do an incredible job just staffing with people that are passionate and knowledgeable, especially almost every single guide had some sort of specialty. One was like a marine biologist, and uh, another one was a specialist in penguins. I don't know what you call that. And <laughs> another one was a glaciologist and um, he, all he did, you know, he knew a ton about glaciers and how they're formed and, and in snow and all that stuff. And so what we found ourselves doing is like having this question on the boat, like, you know, something really simple, like how many types of penguins are there in the world? But there's nowhere to find, there's no way to answer that question except for go talk to Fabrice, the penguin specialist. 
And what's amazing about that is that there's a few things. One, it deepens your relationship with your community around you because you're you're sharing knowledge with each other. It empowers that person that you ask that, you know, it makes them feel it's a little bit vulnerable to I find it a little bit of a vulnerable feeling to ask a question because mm-hmm. I feel like I like should know the answer or whatever yeah. and I'm like, "Oh, I know this is a dumb question, but can you can you answer this?" And so it's a healthy process to ask, but then you also kind of empower them to feel, you know, like uh, they're being helpful, and uh, but then the cool thing too is there's a conversation that happens. Like you don't ever have like a conversation with Google. You say like how many penguins are there, and then it, it says seventeen. And then you might read a little bit more, but like if I were to ask Fabrice, he might say, you know, there's seventeen, and some are in this region, and some are in that region, and three of them are related like this. And then I might say something like, so does that mean this? And he might go into another thread, and I may learn something completely different that's even more fascinating. And we don't have conversations with search engines like that. And so we don't get these deeper threads of knowledge. And I was very aware of it, um, and it's made me – when I got back to uh, Dallas – I moved into my new house with Esther and I was fixing our sink and I was up under the sink and I was like YouTubing a video on how to fix it. And I, I was thinking about all this because it's just been kind of marinating. And I was like, you know what? If I didn't have Google, I probably would have called my dad. I'd like to talk to my dad right now. And I could be building a relationship with him and asking him this question. So anyway, I think there's a lot of – I'm trying to be a little bit more intentional about asking people around me questions uh, I think it's a healthy habit. I think it's good to be uh, somewhat reliant on others versus just being able to do it all ourselves. And I think there's a lot of merit there. Yeah, I think it's easy to like feel like responsible in that we need to know everything. So maybe could you take that another step and talk about that in light of like a creative, like you know, trying to solve a creative problem uh, on a on a project? Because sometimes you might not. I don't know, it might be difficult. You might not know the right person to ask. Right. And the easy solution is just to Google. Right. Yeah, and I mean, I th- I'd certainly think Google's an amazing, it's probably the most powerful tool at your fingertips. Don't, sure. like, you know, block Google on your computer. Because <laughs> um, it's it's super powerful. I think it's just, I think it's uh, good, though, to be aware of um, maybe there are certain topics or certain things that you could reach out to somebody. And so, like, I think on a, you know, on a creative project, I think it, that skill uh, is especially helpful in anything to do with the, the arts or anything that involves vision because you can't ask Google about vision, you know. But <laughs> yeah. um, finding uh, – being able to really ask yourself, um, you know, who's the best uh, fit to answer this question and if it's someone on your team or someone else, on whether on how, how we tell the story or how we present this narrative, I think that's really important. Um yeah, I think if you're creatively, if you're working on a production and it's not just you, um, even if it is just you independently, I think you know asking your community whether you're in, uh, uh, whether you're working alone and you're interacting online, or whether you're in a shared space of some kind, to uh, you know ask the feedback and input from uh, the most qualified individuals around you to give you feedback. I think is a really good habit to just keep your 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 mind in. Yeah. And I think you do that a lot too with like when you put together a project, you very often bring together a lot of different people yeah. as well too, which I know is not always possible depending upon the project. But Yeah, it depends. But it's it's generally so much more powerful to bring in others that are, you know, be, you know, the, the, if you can 
figure out how to create an equal balance where everyone can work in a complementary way, um, that is, uh, yeah, much more powerful than doing it alone. Yeah, that little bit of like figuring out a way that everyone can work together in a complementary way is like a very that's not an easy thing to do. Do you do you have any like maybe experience in that or like uh, any advice into trying to make those those kind of collaborative efforts work well? I don't think I'm that great at it. Um, <laughs> I'm always learning something new and I try to do it. I, seriously, I mean, I think uh, more than anything, probably that's probably my tip number one would be just acknowledge that all of us here don't really know exactly what we're doing and mm. we're going to figure it out together. Yeah. And whatever that is, you know, like we may, uh, but let's, let's acknowledge that none of us is perfect. None of us has the perfect answer and um, together we can build something great if we're vulnerable in that way. So mm. that's probably like a really powerful just foundation. And I think like uh, if you are leading a team, I think one of the most critical things you can possibly do is define where are we going? What are we building? You know, I think a lot of times uh, when uh, someone might bring a team together and you're standing in this valley and you're surrounded by like 19 different mountain peaks and you're like everyone's looking at these different mountain peaks. They're like, oh, we're all in this valley to climb the mountain. But <laughs> not the leader doesn't always say which mountain. And if you don't know which mountain it is, yeah. you don't know which way to walk. And then even then, if we use that same analogy, once you start climbing a mountain, a lot of times there's different paths. So you got to define, you know, that mountain peak is where we're going, and then let's go on this path together. And you got to make sure that we stay on this path because if you don't clearly define this is our mountain, this is what we're climbing, this is what we're conquering, uh, then you can easily get your whole team walking down different paths and ending up ending up on different peaks. But you've got to be constantly recalibrating. Uh, you can't just assume that the people around you have the same thing in your like you know. Oh, well, obviously we're climbing that mountain. That's <laughs> never true. You know, overdefine and make it really clear. Hey, this is our challenge. This is you know what you're a specialist in, and these are the roles of how I see you contributing to the team. Here's the roles of how I see you contributing to the team. Hey, you know, person A. This is what person B is going to be doing. Hey, person B, this is what person A is going to be doing. If you need someone that's really good at that, person A is your guy. If you need someone that's really good at that, person B is is who it is or whatever. So just really making sure that the team understands and is uh, uh, where you're going and also understands what the strengths are of each other um, and that they're leaning into each other in a vulnerable, transparent, and uh, real way. So let's talk a little bit then about like trying to figure out which way you should be going. Because I feel like sometimes it can be difficult. Like there's a number of whether it's on a specific project or with your company, you know, anything. It's like there there are 19 mountains around and we could choose any of them to climb, but sometimes it doesn't seem so clear like what it is we're going after. I feel like and I feel like you and I often we get together and we have lots of ideas yeah. and and sometimes things change, right? Like th right. things have changed with Weld and, and your your dreams for what Weld could be have changed a lot over mm -hmm. the years too. Um, so could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, for just on that last note, I think uh, we should acknowledge that, that we should always be evolving our ideas and, and uh, that that's always going to happen. Like mm -hmm. as just these, these evolutions of um, visions and, um, and evolution should be expected. Like, you know, if you get to a point where you're like, man, this is sure different than what I dreamed of like two years ago. I wonder if I should stop. That's not necessarily true. Like yeah. um, we're always, uh, I think it's always smart to be building on the, the blocks that you've, 
that you have been laying down, like it's hard to think about just jumping over to something else completely. But I think that should be embraced. But yeah, I think all of these things I have a perspective on, but I don't know that I'm uh, <laughs> I'm not going to say I've got the answer uh, lined up. But I, I think for me, what I look at, I look at a few different things. Um, one of my favorite books is this uh, book by Jim Collins called Good to Great. And uh, I just blew through it and just loved loved it in general. But w- basically, he's looking at like a thousand plus different businesses and, and deciding which ones to qualify as great. Hmm. And uh, he only like qualifies like five as great. And he finds like parallels between oh, wow. all of them. And um, it was a really insightful book. It's It's been around for a little while now and it's turned into uh, a bit of a classic. But uh, one of the things that he talks about in that book all the time is um, the intersection of these three categories. And I've used that in my mind to think about, you know, what should I be tackling next? And the first thing is um, what are you uh, really passionate about? The second is uh, uh, what can you be the best in the world at? And the third is what can drive your economic engine? And basically what they found is these businesses that he did consider great, um, they're at the intersection of all three of those things. And uh, I find that's a really powerful uh, just I, – I, I go back to that when I'm making decisions about what do I want to tackle and you know, especially if I'm on the brink of starting an entirely new business or um, venture of some kind. Like I'm, I'm really looking at it through all three of those things because if you don't have all three, it's just not going to be sustainable. It's not going to stand the test of time. If you're the best in the world at it and you're really passionate about it, but the market just won't pay for it, you're not going to be doing it for long unless it's, you know, in arts. There's, there's exceptions. But in general, if, if you're wanting it to be a business, um, that's just – if the market doesn't want it and you're the best in the world and you're passionate – forget it. Uh, but then also if you're really passionate and the market wants it, but you're not good at it, forget it. Like if I try to go be a quarterback, it's not going to happen. I'm just not a quarterback. Uh, and same thing if, if you're, you know, if you are the best in the world at it and people will pay you all the money in the world for it, but you just aren't passionate about it, forget it, you know? And so really all three of those, it's a really important intersection and a nice filter, uh, but not the only filter uh, to look at, uh, you know, different opportunities through. And I think even on a on a project, like if you've got two projects that come up and they're conflicting schedules and uh, you're trying to decide which one to, to go for, use that filter. Think about it. Like which one of these am I uniquely qualified to be to, to really knock it out of the park? Which one am I more passionate about and which one could generate more money? Those are three great questions to ask and and to, um, you know, weigh into that conversation. Um, so I, I think that's really important. Um when you're thinking about, uh, you know, which which mountain to climb. And then, you know, there's also, uh, for me and my own filter, I'm also really uh, interested in, um, I feel uh, that my time in the world is a gift and I want to be uh, responsible uh, with that as a resource, my time um, to uh, make a difference in other people's lives. And uh, so that's another really big filter for me, and and sometimes uh, that uh, one parameter kind of outweighs all the other ones, and I am I end up doing something that, you know, doesn't uh, really maybe hit on any of them or only hits on a couple uh, that I see as uh, really a calling, and uh, I think it's when we've been given what we've been given to think about ways uh, to be philanthropic about it or to uh, make a difference in other people's lives that goes beyond this world is important. So you've spent, you know, through the process of building Weld, you spent a lot of time thinking about what makes 
creative communities function and and thrive with each other. And um, you know, for the for you know our listeners, like we have the animation industry, and more specifically, maybe the motion design and commercial animation industry, and and that is very much a community. It happens on Twitter, it happens on Slack channels, and mixed parts, and motionographer, and all kinds of things. But then also we have smaller creative communities in. Um, you know, studios and agencies and things like that too. And they ha have a culture, whether we want them to or not, or hate that kind of lingo or not, they do. Um, and I think it's one of those things that either you're working, you know, to build in the right way, or, or if you're not paying attention to it, I think, you know, you might have some blind spots. So I don't know, could you talk a little bit about some of the things that you've learned in building a creative community? I'm not sure where to start. That's a big one. Uh, I think, you know, you mentioned blind spots a second ago. I think one of the biggest things that we learn in community is that we all have blind spots. Mm -hmm. And um, we all are, I think, as one of the biggest things that I, I began to realize uh, as we began to bring people together around uh, a single vision of collaborating together was that really, truly, this is going to sound like not true, but... <laughs> Like, listen to this and let it settle in. Nobody knows what they're doing. No one has stood right where they stand today before. That's a reality. It doesn't matter if you're the world's biggest pop star, if you're the most famous animators or anything else. No one knows. No one has stood right here. And everybody is saying, okay, now I'm here. What do I do next? That is a reality. And you don't see it online. You don't feel it through a, like the digital presence because we can craft that and control that in such a powerful way. But I truly believe after spending time face-to-face -face with people because that's where you get vulnerable and that's where trust is created and people feel more open that everybody's figuring it out. Like I've never done a po this podcast before. <laughs> I've never, uh, you know, stood with the the same experience that I've had in the past and looked at the same challenges that I'm looking at right now. I haven't, and neither has any other person in the whole entire world. I believe that the, maybe the single biggest debilitating, uh, just kind of energy in the world right now is the perception that everyone else knows what they're doing, but me. It's not true. Everyone's figuring it out. Everyone's tackling it. Um, whether they're going to be, I, I mean, there's people that are going to tell you what the, they know what they're doing, but if they are, then just run away and acknowledge that they're not being vulnerable and they're lying. Because we, I mean, sure, like it, to some degree, a lot of us have, some of us have more experience than sure. others in certain things, but it's always a new problem. It's always a new challenge. It's always a new formula. And you can look to history to inform this next challenge, but there's always something different. And so um, I, I think that's something that I've learned for sure, uh, being around people face-to-face -face on a daily basis. Um, probably maybe my, my, my biggest uh, just single uh, takeaway. Um, and then I think um, there's way more people uh, out there that are like you than you think. Yeah, I think it's a beautiful thing when you get people together that are that are similar and you realize like, oh, like you're dealing with the same challenge as me or like you're passionate about that same thing as me. Like I didn't really feel um, that there was anyone else that was quite like that. And I, I think that's uh, something that I've seen that's uh, really special. And, and I think, that, yeah, that power of two plus two equals five and seeing what happens when uh, people dream and they have the resources around them, uh, like physical space and the talents of other people. Um, I think a lot about collective imagination and 
um, like with you, Zach, like uh, where if I'm, uh, you know, if we're at lunch or something and I have an idea uh, about something, like I can only do so much, but I might like start dreaming with your talents because we're friends and I would love to team up with you. And so the more I understand your talents, the more I can collectively imagine the possibilities of us together. And so asking you questions about, you know, what's really awesome, what are the new plugins and what's really awesome in this and what's the future of that? Like, I don't, I'm not an animator, but I want to know because I want to know because I believe that you're, um, you know, a specialist in that field and I have so I have a lot to learn from that and I can dream with that capacity and that capability because we are a potential team. And so I think, yeah, collective imagination is something that um, is an incredibly powerful and I'm still looking for ways to unlock and always always thinking about. What are some some dreams that that you have for kind of the overall creative community in the world, kind of looking forward into how we can work better together? Well, I, I think that um, there's this idea of the uh, starving artist that I would love to just like completely crush. <laughs> I think that artists and creative minds are the people that everyone in the world wants to have that secret elixir or whatever they have that this the vision right and i think everybody is created to create at some level but i think you know we, we have this subset of like creatives or whatever you call them that artists or whatever that everyone looks at and there's this and it's like oh yeah he like you know he doesn't get paid very much he's an artist <laughs> but that i think is ridiculous because i think that artist is the it possesses the thing that no one can buy. Yeah. And so I think if they really believe that, then um, that they're bringing a value to the world that the world really needs and that um, the, the artists that understand that are the ones that are doing the most, creating the most meaningful things in the world and they're creating confidently and they're uh, creating boldly and they're challenging norms. And I would love to see that idea of the starving artist just completely annihilated because we have a great gift and we should walk with that uh, confidently and we should be we have this light that we can shine into darkness and light always conquers darkness and we have as much light as we possibly need to just shine with our ideas and our creativity and I love that idea I love that darkness hides at the speed of light and we have the power of light and uh, so I would love to see the creative community more confidently walking in that and uh, filling that darkness with their creations and their ideas and, and making and believing. I mean, throughout history, it's artists and creative minds that have that have shaped change. And I believe that now more than ever, that power is, tr is still true and um, that we have the tools at our fingertips to really shape the way that people are thinking and challenge the world um, to live differently and live better in all kinds of different ways. So you spoke to confidence. So how can you be confident, even though, as you said, you have no idea what you're doing? Um, that's a good, that's a good question. So I, I'd say, uh, I think that confidence comes from realizing, I think for starters, realizing that you're not alone in that creates confidence. Like if you're sitting there looking at a, a problem and you're like, I don't know what I'm doing. And your mind goes to, uh, to everyone else knows what they're doing. That undermines your confidence. <laughs> but if you are look at it and you think, I don't know what I'm doing. I need to solve this. 
okay, that's okay. That's how everyone else does it as well. Okay, what's next? That thought process right there is the found, is the beginning of being confident about whatever you're tackling. If you're just kind of tackling it under the premise that you're underqualified and um, you know uh, shouldn't be tackling this, then then you don't have any confidence in the first place. So, but then after that, I would say. Um, uh, that's where teams are really important is you can bring in other people that might be an expert and ask for more. Um, like I think I think a lot about solving problems in five steps, which the first one is defining the problem. The second one's collecting data and info about the problem. The next one's brainstorming how to solve it. The next one is kind of qualifying or debating which way to solve it. And then the, the last one is experimenting. And that's just a that's just an ever-going loop. And I tell photographers, um, you know, every time we take a picture with our camera um, we're, we're, and, and we look at the back and we take another picture, we're going through that whole cycle right there. You, you take a picture and it's too bright and you think, okay, um, let's collect the data. And you look at your histogram and what your frame speed, you know, what your shutter speed was and your aperture and all those things. You look at the data and then you brainstorm, how can I fix it? And you can say, you know, I can speed up my shutter speed or I can adjust my aperture or my ISO. And then you qualify them and you say, well, if I adjust my ISO, it's going to be too grainy. If I adjust my shutter speed, then it won't freeze the motion. And if I adjust my aperture, then it's going to affect the depth of field. And so you, you kind of qualify which one do you want to do. Uh, you could also add more light or whatever. And so maybe um, you decide to add more light and then you take another shot and you just went through that whole cycle. But that applies to um, a client problem or any animation or anything that you're doing to be able to break it down into these chunks and just say, okay, like I do this every day when I take a picture or every day when I, um, you know, create a motion graphic of any kind or whatever, you could apply it to anything, but it also applies to like, okay, I just built this business in over six years and uh, it's not quite where we want it to be. So let or, you know, I want, there's a problem of some kind and let's define whatever it is. That's, really important. What is actually the problem? That's step one, define it. And then you start asking others like, all right, collect data about it. Look at the metrics. Look at how this has performed well. Look at how it hasn't. And uh, ask, you know, pull the community or whatever. There's all kinds of ways you can collect data. But anyway, so that can apply to the biggest problems in the world and the smallest ones as well. So I asked about confidence because I feel you you are one of the best person at, at pitching yourself and your ideas. I like, I feel like I sit down with a, with you at lunch or something like that. You, you share with me an idea and I just want to go for it. And, <laughs> and that doesn't happen with a lot, a lot of people, but I feel like your confidence in yourself and your vision is, is a really, really big part of that. Um, because I, I, I can feel that you believe like that this is what we need to be doing. And I am the person to be doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like not everybody's got that, um, but maybe they can. I don't know. So I would, I, I don't know. This is my way of kind of segueing into talking about pitching a little bit. But, yeah. I, but I think it does stem from from confidence. Yeah, I think you're right. I think I don't get confident. Uh, my like uh, personality type and style is I, I don't really. I don't generally speak unless I'm really confident. I don't. Yeah. I'm not much of a verbal processor. I'm. I generally internalize and I like. I can think about one thing for like months or years, and um, and but then when I speak, I'm like I've arrived at uh, a thesis that this is the truth, you know. And I get and so I, I build confidence over time by collecting data from different mm-hmm. places and thinking about different ways to solve the problem or 
whatever. And then when I arrive at it and I'm like ready to talk about it, I think I'm just generally like an evangelist of it because I'm yeah. like, this is it. This is how to do it. Yeah. And uh, and so I think I think that's true. I think maybe that confidence that exudes comes from you know uh, hours or days or months or whatever of like thinking about how do we solve this problem. And then, yeah, and then the arrival of that uh, is is important. But I think, yeah, so I think confidence starts with believing that this idea is the best way to solve the problem or believing that you can be the best um, in terms of a pitch. And I'm a huge advocate of pitching. I've It's had a really big impact on, on uh, my life and uh, the lives of uh, some friends around me. And I believe that uh, pitching is perhaps the single greatest talent or skill that you can develop uh, to, uh, in order for you to do the work that you, your best work and work that you love. And the reason... Well, before you keep going, I, I want to just put a, a pause on there because I feel like when people in the animation industry hear pitching, they think like agency gets five, you know, five animation studios to come in and like kind of pitch their ideas right. um, on this one brief or something like that. Yeah. But when you're when you're talking about pitching, you're more of, of talking about like, here's this thing that I really want to do. Yeah. I'm going to find the person who's going to help me get this made or fund it or, or come along board as a you know, alongside as a partner right. and then kind of bring this in into light. So I just want to qualify yeah. when, when you're talking about pitching, that's generally what, what you're talking about. Yeah. I love all kinds of pitching. <laughs> I like, I, I like that kind of pitching too. Um, cause that's like a little bit more competitive and yeah. like really fun to win. Yeah. Um, but yeah, what I'm talking about in pitching, uh, now is more, I would describe as just like the art of getting other people to jump on board with your idea. Yeah. Right. Like that's what it is, is uh, and that's a, that's really that truly is an art. And it's uh, it's a really valuable one. If you can do that one thing, then you can build great teams. You can um, uh, if you can cast that vision effectively, you can build great teams. You can gather all the resources that you need to build that vision. But if you can't do that. You can't gather any resources. You can't gather people. You can't gather capital. You can't gather um, anything. You know, and so pitching and that and kind of that basic. Uh, I think that applies to a personal pitch, and it also applies to a pitch at an agency when you've got five, when you're up against five teams or whatever. But more specifically, I think that especially for freelancers and independent creative pros, the truth is that um, if people come to you with ideas, like if your client comes to you and says, we need you to do this, there's probably like a 0.001% chance that that idea they come with you or come at, come to you with is the idea that's like currently stirring inside uh, and perfectly resonates with what you want to be doing deep inside of your soul. We all have that. We all have those things that like, oh man, if only someone would hire me to do this or what I really want to do someday is this, you know, and like no one people aren't going to come to you and just like happen to line up with that. It just doesn't work like that. There's, you know, super rare exceptions, but I know some of your crazy ideas, no one's coming to you to build them and I'm the same way. And so I think what's really important is um, not saying, well, I just can't do those things. I think Hmm. uh, the, the truth is the work that you're most passionate about and the work that's stirring inside of you is likely going to be the best work that you ever do. But you shouldn't necessarily be doing them with your own, uh, you know, capital, or you shouldn't be doing them alone. Uh, and you might need a team around you. And so, getting 
people to jump on board with that uh, is really important. And so I think it starts with, um, you know, defining whatever that vision is and then and then finding if you're looking for extra resources or someone helped build a team or cash or anything, you know, um, figuring out, um, you know, how does this line up with with them? Like, what are they trying to build? Really understanding, like, how, if I do this thing, how does it solve their problem? And then once you've got that uh, clearly in your mind, and that starts by really understanding them. It doesn't start by saying like, hey, this is what I want to do. You want to jump on board? <laughs> it, that's just not how to do it. And uh, more so, it starts with a conversation with them of first seeking to understand them and then to be understood. And I think that like simple habit, which is like in a book, uh, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, it's like habit three or something. Uh, seek first to understand and then to be understood. That simple idea is really powerful um, in pitching because, um, you know, it'll just bounce right off of people if it doesn't line up. And when I think about a pitch, I've been fortunate to pitch my way through a lot of things. <laughs> um, I've pitched my way to the World Cup and shot the World Cup on a whim. I've actually officially pitched uh, a project to every continent in the world now. Um, I've pitched all kinds of different stuff. And what I've realized with the pitch is that um, – and what I think about when I'm doing these pitches is, you know, when I say this to them on the phone or an email or face-to-face or however I get to communicate with them, when I say it, I want to know them so well and I want it to be so perfectly lined up with their goals that, like, they'll think in my their minds, like, oh, my gosh, like – Two days ago, we were in the meeting room and we wrote this as our main problem on our whiteboard. <laughs> and like, you are the solution. Like, yeah. if you do that and you say, "Hey, like, I'm already doing this. This is the momentum that's going." And then you land them and and you hit them with that, and it's so well lined up with where their company is going. It's almost a guarantee that if the resources work out and the time works out and everything else, they're going to want to work with you because they're trying to solve that problem. It is possible to know them that well, and to and I think part of that is by just looking at history where what what did they do last march what did they do the march before that what do you think their challenges are where are the challenges what's their competitors doing how do we create an edge uh for them against their competitors and just really understanding like a teammate uh to them and that's how you want to approach a pitch is as a teammate with an idea that solves one of their problems that is also in your interest it's really hard to do and it takes a lot of thought but it's uh it can uh it can get you to interesting places around the world and get you to doing your best work and um, and um, really creating your dreams. Talk a little bit about the the World Cup, getting into the World Cup. Yeah, uh, so that was early. That was one of my early pitches, which um, I wanted to go to the World Cup in South Africa. Oh, there's a couple pitch stories here. <laughs> um, I wanted to uh, go to the World Cup in South Africa, and I like entered the like lottery or whatever to win tickets. I didn't win tickets. Pretty bummed, but that was like a good bit before the World Cup, and I was just like, oh, you know, whatever. Well, you know, like a month out from the World Cup, I was like, oh my gosh, I really want to go to this. Like, you know, things were heating up, and the news was talking about it, and it's in. It was the first one ever in Africa. I've worked a ton in Africa, and it's just like, oh man, this is gonna be amazing. And so, like, I it it just kept getting like hotter, like up until like two weeks out, and I just like I can't take it anymore. I've got to figure out a way to go. And I, I started thinking, okay, you know, I want to go to the World Cup. 
whose problem does that solve? And I started thinking like, all right, well, I'm a photographer, so I could shoot media, but I probably can't get field access. And I, I'm sure I tried to get field access like 19 ways, but I, <laughs> I didn't. I, was, I didn't successfully do that. But I, so then I was like, okay, well, I'm going to be in the audience. Whose problem does that solve? And I thought, hmm, maybe I could do, I wonder how many professionals are in the stands doing stories about what it's like to be in the audience at the World Cup. And what if I, you know, the, the World Cup is in six days at this point. And what if I do a story about a last-minute trip for uh, to go to the World <laughs> Cup? Because like, these are the realities of what I of how I can spin it. So I'm like pitching. I have a few friends um, at different places. Like there, one was uh, you know at a, a tech blog. Another one was at like AOL's travel blog, and a few others. And um, and it landed with my buddy at this AOL travel blog. And he's like, we would love to do a story of like what it's like to be in the audience. And I kind of like, you know, I pitched him on, you know, how interesting I thought it could be and just how wild it gets in the stands and shooting video. And it's, But part of the premise is like, you know, this last minute trip of this travel photographer. And I was like staying in a safari tent in South Africa. If I went, like I had a friend that had a couple of tickets that were extras that I ended up finding out. So I kind of told, and I knew where they were staying. So I kind of like created this whole story of this, like, oh yeah, you know, I'll, uh, and this is, you know, 2010. So it's before like vlogging, like really took off or anything. But the idea was, you know, capture my flight over there, talk about a little bit about travel, talk about some yeah. of my gear, create some interesting content. And they're like, we love it. And they they wanted to do two episodes. And so I got over there, I shot all these episodes, but I also, you know, and that funded pretty much most of my trip. But I also was like, ah, oh, you know, I'd, I'd really like to pay for the whole trip. So on my way back, I, was, I had a stop in Senegal, never been to West Africa at this point, but I started pitching everyone I knew in Africa saying, hey, I'm gonna be in Senegal. I've got, I'll have a bunch of gear. I'll have like three days or two days. And I ended up like connecting with this organization that was doing uh, micro drip irrigation in the desert and growing gardens and stuff, Beersheba Project. And uh, I uh, shot a whole piece for them. And that was how I finished. And I think they really benefited from it. I was able to give it to them in a, at a great value. And because uh, I was really just looking to get the trip, uh, you know, covered and, and if I could contribute value where, wherever I could. And that ended up being really cool. But while I was there, I, that, they had just come out with the iPhone 4. I was either 4 or 4S. I can't remember ex exactly. And I was sitting there thinking, like, oh, you know what? Like, And at this point, I was shooting a lot with the iPhone. And I was like, they just came out with this camera. The World Cup is – or the, the iPhone, which I think of as a camera. <laughs> and they just came out with this iPhone. And it's an amazing camera. And there's this world event that's the World Cup. There's nothing else like it. Wouldn't it be awesome to line up both of these huge, uh, like this huge product launch with this huge world event and capture the World Cup with the iPhone? So I had no contacts at Apple or anything. And I just wrote steve at apple.com. I actually pulled up the email recently. <laughs> really? Yeah, I just <laughs> wrote steve at Apple. And I laid out this pitch of why I was the best qualified person to create this amazing PR campaign of capturing the World Cup with the iPhone. And um, I went back and read it the other day. I was like, I wish I, that was great. He should, we should have done this. Yeah. You know, because like I had tickets, I had access, I knew I was staying, and I um, could have, like, and my pitch was, hey, I'm in South Africa. I could fly back to New York. I could pick up the iPhone. I could just get on the next flight. I could be at these two games shooting it. We could do this really interesting thing. 
probably the only flaw of the whole pitch was that I wrote Steve at Apple.com. I probably should have like tried to land <laughs> yeah. something with PR or He's something. Probably not, wasn't busy at all, yeah, really. Yeah, iPhone yeah, launch coming up. That was yeah. probably the main uh, <laughs> issue. But, um, you know, and uh, there's more to that story, but that one didn't land. And um, But so I was just, uh, for every like pitch that has landed, and there's probably to go back to the earlier lesson that like not everyone has it figured out and it's not as easy as it looks is I bet there's 30 pitches for every one pitch, uh, you know, that, that actually lands. Like you hear that story and you're like, Oh man, like I should totally be pitching. And then you go pitch a couple of times and it doesn't land. Well, you learn from that. It's not a failure. Learn from it and figure out why, and then do it again and keep, and maybe the timing's not right. And maybe the resources aren't right. Maybe you don't understand the company as well as you thought you did or whatever, but just uh, don't be debilitated by the fact that, like, you don't, you know, land it on the first try. Like, keep trying. Be relentless. Well, and that's interesting because you just told a story about how you pitched Apple on, you know, shooting some iPhone, you know, photography with a new iPhone. Um, yeah. And fast forward, what, you know, seven seven years and the last, what, three releases? Four? Six. Six, six releases. I just, I just did my Sixth, yeah. Okay, you have gotten the iPhone, whatever the new one is, what, yeah. about a week, two weeks? Yeah, you get it for some amount of time. Before early. launch. I haven't gotten it six times early, but yeah. Okay. I yeah. was the first, I was fortunate to be the first photographer, independent photographer to have hands on an iPhone early uh, whenever the iPhone 6 came out, and I was working alongside The Verge, and yep. um, uh, I took the iPhone to Iceland, and uh um, that was a really fun, really exciting trip. And that had been, yeah, so this, that's six years later. Uh, yeah. the, the part that I skipped is, uh, <laughs> it's just six years. Um, no, uh, in, or four years, uh, in 2012 though. So two, fast forward two years. So the world cup 2010 wrote this pitch, no response. 2012, it, the f- iPhone five comes out. So that would mean that in 2010, it was the iPhone four and then 2011 was 4s. Uh, in 2012, it was the five. And that's when they came out with Panorama mode, and that's really before anyone was like thinking really seriously about the iPhone as a camera. There were a few people that were using it for interesting things, and frankly, when when phones in general first had cameras on them, I thought it was st- stupid. I was like, why in the world? <laughs> I, st- I still remember like being in high school and seeing like this like Chinese made phone and being like, what in the world? <laughs> um, and so I, I certainly, I wasn't maybe uh, as, I, I, as bright as I thought I was, but yeah. So in 2012, they came out with the iPhone five panorama mode got released and they were like talking about it at the Apple keynote. I've been a big Mac fan my whole life um, and bought my first iMac as a seventh grader in 1998 when it first came out <laughs> and uh, mowed lawns all summer long and wow. just like very uh, committed to uh, to getting that Mac all summer. Anyway, so um, I would watch the keynote and they were talking about panorama mode, how beautiful it was. And then I looked at all the reviews. They're all great reviews, but they were generally all the same. They, they all reviewed what the consumer experience is of the device as a whole. So it's like, you know, here's what the screen's like. Here's what the battery's like. Here's what the camera's like. Here's what the software's like. 
these are the different things about the iPhone that you should know. And I'm like, no, this is like needs to be a camera review. Like mm-hmm. this is turning into a real deal camera. And they, a couple of people had like shot panos, but it was like, you know, like their office on the 27th yeah. floor yeah. of New York City or at best, maybe they went out to Central Park and like shot a pano, but the light's not nice and it's not like art. It's not inspiring. And I'm like, I wonder, I think you could create something amazing with this. I want to see, like no one's giving me the data that I want, which is, how far can I push this? How does it do in low light? Like what, like what kind of art and inspiring things can I create with it? And so I pitched a friend. So I thought, okay, where's the best place in the world I could possibly shoot panoramas? And what do I want to do? What am I passionate about? I wanted to go to Iceland at the time. Also a great place to shoot panoramas. So that was a big win. And I had another friend that was launching a digital uh, motion media company at the time. And he needed uh, like unique uh, super abstract footage from somewhere in the world. And so I was like, hey, man, would you consider, like, you know, funding uh, a trip to Iceland? I'll do, the, I'll do that whole project for you at just cover, like, trip costs and expenses. And, uh, and he was like, yeah. And so I, I went and shot that whole p- project for him, which was pretty simple. And I brought my uh, really good friend Jordan. And we went over there together, created that content, but then uh, a huge driver to it was also to uh, put the iPhone to the test in its real world. So shot all these panos, did some low light, like side-by-side tests, and uh, really realized how much I enjoy that process of analytically, uh, you know, looking at these uh, different products and comparing the differences of how the new one is uh, different, pros and cons, and uh, all that stuff. And then I put it online, and it seemed to get some really great engagement. So... I was like, oh, that was, you know, that was cool. It's, the Mac community seemed to really enjoy it. And, and you know, that was completely independently. I just bought an iPhone on the day it came out. And, and uh, then the next day or the next year, I thought, hey, let's do it again. And, again, waited in line uh, until they released the iPhone and then, like, literally, like, boarded a, f- a flight, like, the night that the iPhone became available and uh, went to Patagonia. I left my DSLR at home, which was a big one, 2013. Wow. Came out with burst mode that year, had panos. Panos uh, were quite a bit better. They like had dynamic uh, highlight and like sh- like exposure adjustment, which was a big one. And shot that one and p- put it online, and that got tons of traffic. It was like a really uh, fun project to see, just like get a lot of traffic and traction. And then the next year, um, just given the audience that had developed um, through The Verge, started working with uh, with Apple, the Apple team, and uh, was able to take the iPhone uh, 6 and 6 Plus uh, to Iceland and uh, test it before it came out. And uh, that was a really neat opportunity and just cool to uh, get a demo unit and to um, be able to find those answers a little bit earlier than usual. And, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, of course, um, they do such a, a wonderful job with their launches in general, and there's so much uh, traffic and just uh, build up around that time. So to be able to release the uh, the review um, just a bit before the iPhone's release meant a lot of tra- traffic. Yeah. And, um, and so, yeah, that was uh, the kind of beginning uh, working on my iPhone reviews and how they got started and a few pitches that I, you know, I can think of right now of how they were weaved in and out of it. Um, and uh, and that's been really fun. Now it's 2018. I just finished my iPhone 10 review, which was in Guatemala. Uh, and uh, then also iPhone 8 this year was in uh, India. And um, last year was in uh, Rwanda. Uh, with the iPhone 7, uh, working with the gorillas. The year before yeah. that was Switzerland. 
And so anyway, it's just been, uh, I'm always going to a new place to push the iPhone to its limits and find answers on how is it uh, better, how is it worse, what are the things that photographers and creative pros should know on how to make the, the most of creating with this device. So let's let's get a little little practical with pitches. So let's say you're working on a, a pitch deck or even just an email or you're going in to present. Uh, what are some practical some practical tips for um, those moments, those decks? So the first thing, like step one really is establish what you want. Step two is find someone who needs you to do that thing. So like, you know, whose problem it solves. And once you've found that person, you the next step really is to establish uh, trust as being the best way to solve that problem. Yeah. And so you, you might need to, uh, if you haven't established trust with this person already, like, you know, if I... Uh, we know each other well, so if I pitched you an idea, you'd have some trust in me and you'd be a lot more likely to like jump on board yeah. with it than if uh, some other person, even if they're actually better qualified, if they pitched you or whatever, you would have no way of knowing like it, would this be successful uh, mm-hmm. even if they were way better at it than I am. So that's really important is think about how do you establish uh, trust and that comes from you know maybe showing pointing to evidence in the past of how you've been successful doing this thing or um, uh, you know pointing out to uh, different clients that you've worked with that are maybe mutual or whatever um, but establishing that rapport and trust is really important and then um, you know I think that uh, again like collecting data, doing a lot of research, understanding where they're at, and coming up with a, a theory or an idea that's really lined up, very aligned with them is so important. And then uh, in terms of the actual um, like first interaction, I think you want it to be as close as possible. So if you can see this person face-to-face, you probably want to do it that way. If you can talk to them on the phone, you, that's probably next best. If you can email them, that's next best. Um, but I, I think like the closer that that communication can be, the better. Sometimes you have to just cold pitch on email though because you don't know anybody. And uh, um, But other times you can walk in. I got my job at National Geographic by showing up at their doorstep with my book and like talking to the security guard until he would let me in. <laughs> and so I had no relationship there and I had, I had sent in a digital application and email and I hadn't heard back and I just was like, I'm going to go do this. And that was really a pitch too. And that was probably one of the biggest pitches of my career of, and I was at the right place at the right time providentially and, um, and what became a huge monumental part of, uh, my career. But that is a good point of what I was trying to say, which is they were saying no, or essentially I wasn't hearing back on the digital outlet, which is essentially a no. And so I went to try to find another, uh, way in and I, that was to, you know, walk into the front door, which was like, you know, <laughs> scary for sure. But I, well, at the end of the day, I realized this idea, which is probably maybe the single most important thing to think about when you're thinking about a pitch is the worst thing that can happen is they say no, and I end up right where I started, which is yeah. not like bad, which yeah. is right where I started. The best thing that can happen is they say yes, and you get to do this dream thing and with them and, and they make it better and they provide the resources, whatever resources you need. And that one idea of just realizing the worst thing that can happen is they say no, and I'm still right here. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so that's what I realized uh, with the Nat Geo thing. And um, I think like that's a really important part of it. So, you know, it's just kind of cutting through whatever the noise is. And if you're not hearing from this first attack method or the, well, maybe we shouldn't call it that, but, uh, <laughs> you know, this first approach 
Yeah. Uh, you try another approach and, and be relentless about it. And so I think that's important on the tactical side and just uh, the straightforward tips. And then I think it's really important that um, you be genuinely open to their ideas. Don't get so fixated on your idea that you won't listen to them because ultimately it needs to be their idea. You want it to be you want them to have some ownership of it in order for them to jump on board. And, and you have to acknowledge that maybe they can make it better. I think that's the, maybe the trickiest part of pitching because, like I said earlier, I think uh, pitches are really about doing the, the work that you love the most and the stuff that's you know coming up that's just boiling inside of you that you really want to be tackling. And it, if you aren't careful, all of a sudden you cannot be doing your pitch and you can be doing whatever their idea is. And so that's just something to be aware of. And the more that you're lined up, the more that your idea is lined up with their need, the better. And so you don't want to be so rigid that you're just not listening. You're saying, no, we're only doing it my way. But you also <laughs> don't want to be so flexible that uh, all of a sudden you're just like doing client work. All right. Well, let's, let's shift and talk a little bit about photography. Um, which is, I mean, I guess it's mostly how you make your living. Yeah, still it's how point. I make my yeah, living. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay, so, you know, obviously it's an animation podcast, but I think there's a lot um, to be learned on, on the kind of cross-discipline. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're all trying to make great-looking images. Yeah. So I guess to you, like, what makes a great-looking image in, in your mind when you are shooting? That depends a little bit on the subject, but yeah. if you're just talking about visual aesthetics, I think... You know, obviously, it's very subjective in terms of artistic opinion. But my 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 thought is that um, I want to be sure that when someone's looking at any visual that I'm creating, that their eye knows where to look. It's not lost. Um, mm-hmm. I I like to think of creating an image that I like to literally physically think about the eye of the viewer and where will it go in different stages as they look at the image. When they first see it, what is it? What are they? What are they seeing when they when they look at it a little bit longer? What are they seeing? What is where does their eye run through this visual? And so I think a lot about that. Um, I think that applies to design. I think it applies to architecture and space and uh, uh, an image, a still image, motion image, animation, whatever. Um, especially if you're doing in commercial work, I think it's really important that you know that stuff because you're your job is to be conveying a specific message. And so you you should be leading the viewer to the specific parts of the narrative in your image that you that you need to. Mm-hmm. So yeah, and I, I think that I think that when someone looks at uh, I I think you should feel uh, I think and I think you're looking to elicit an emotion of some kind, like to be able to connect with the viewer in a way um, that elicits a feeling uh, or an emotion as um, a, a really broad level value. And, um, you know, some people create images that make you feel happy. Other ones create images that make you feel scared or, uh, you know, horrified or sick or whatever. You know, there you can go across the the board. You can feel sure. warm and cozy or terrified or whatever. And uh, But I think that, that an effective image is one that makes the viewer feel something. So what are some, some tips that you often give people when it comes to capturing better images? I mean, even, you know, from shooting on your iPhone to, you know, shooting on a house yeah. of blood. Uh, I think for your craft, doesn't matter uh, with photographer or what, but I think maybe the single greatest ingredient that you can inject into your craft or into an image is time. Mm-hmm. And I think time 
can be uh, delivered to your image in a few different ways. It can look like uh, you know lots of time contemplating how this image is going to be created. I think it can be lots of time sitting on a mountaintop waiting for the light to be right to capture this image. It can be time um, shaping the image in post and editing it and thinking about the presentation of the image. But I think that time is... Uh, something that uh, very few of us are really willing to invest into our craft. And um, I think the, the other part of investing is that that means practicing and doing tons of experimentation and personal work. That time is all informing your professional work and your other images as well. And like putting hours upon hours of uh, time into your craft will shape your voice, it will shape your style. And that is, in my opinion, a secret ingredient. It seems like everyone's trying to inject all these other things, t- do all these tutorials and try new equipment and do all these different things to uh, maybe take a shortcut. But you can't, time is our only inelastic resource. We can't buy more of it. We are, it's all, we're every minute, like we're just giving little tokens of time to things. <laughs> yeah. And you should be giving tokens of time to your craft. And that's going to be what sets your craft apart. Be the guy, be the one whoever you are, to give way more tokens to your craft than whoever else it is in the industry, and you're going to set yourself apart. That is, I mean, there may be an exception to that, but I feel like that's almost a universal statement. Just give it more time. And so I think that's really important. Then if we get into more just photographically, I think that uh, light is the single most important ingredient uh, of, a, of a photograph uh, after time. And, um, you know, time is really interesting in the actual photographic sense yeah. um, uh, as we choose to let a certain amount of time in uh, uh, to leave our shutter open for a certain amount of time to let the light in. And um, But light, understanding how to work with light, understanding how light makes the viewer feel, understanding how light makes your subject feel while you're shooting it or whoever, whatever that is and understanding how to interact and manipulate and adjust and interact with light is just so important as a photographer. It doesn't matter if you're shooting with your iPhone or Hasselblad, that's your key. And so really thinking about how's the light falling? How can I tweak it? How is it adjusting the way, you know, the story or the way that I feel when I'm looking at this person? Like if I have a uh, a light that's um, really close to somebody, it's effectively large, so it's going to be really soft light, and it's going to probably not, uh, it's not going to cast a very harsh shadow, and so it'll fill the um, the texture of their face, and that is maybe a really beautiful look, or if I take that exact same light and I move it away really far, and that's going to, um, you know, make the light effectively smaller, and it's going to give me a lot harsher shadows. If I light them from below, it's going to cast shadows upwards over their face, which is kind of like makes us feel something completely different. That's a really common way of like lighting like a horror film or something. It's like scary to be lit from below. It makes it elicits a different emotion. And so, and you're not changing anything. You could be doing this of a mannequin. It doesn't, <laughs> it, it makes you feel differently. And so, uh, really, really obsessing over light and time uh, are the things that are probably the uh, the truest, um, uh, and when you're looking at your your visual, and I'm fascinated personally. Like uh, my photography is a big part of my faith story, and uh, I became a Christian in um, 2005, and it was through that that um, I got into photography actually. But all, all, there was a this big 
interest for me of like how how does light fill darkness in this like spiritual sense and also in this physical sense and so I was on this exploration and this journey of like light's conquering of darkness and uh, where there is light there is no darkness and darkness hides at the speed of light and that's a crazy idea I still I I probably could safely say not a day goes by that I don't kind of my mind at some point doesn't wander into this kind of like fascination with with that with that concept and uh, and so photography became this exploration for me uh, I was I started by shooting a ton at night and um, I would shoot sometimes till sunrise but I love shooting at night because you know you're the one adding the light and you're the one really controlling the light and uh, it's filling that darkness and it's uh, it creates really dramatic images and and so um, yeah I think you know just really if that's where your head is at and you're thinking about um, how is this light, um, you know, falling into this uh, darkness? How is it filling it? How is the darkness uh, presented in the image? Those are um, high-level kind of concepts that I think apply to really almost any visual, but especially photography. Well, we try and end each episode with the same few questions. The first is, who is your dream client? So someone that you would love to work with right now. And I know it's always changing. Yeah, uh, you know, I've been fortunate to work with some of my uh, like dream clients. Um, yeah, and uh, if I think about uh, clients that I uh, would still really love to work with and uh, brands that I really admire, I've done a little bit of work with uh, with Audi, just at the local level. But I'd really love I I admire their brand a lot. I haven't done uh, much work. Uh, with them except for just like local dealership stuff uh, which has been fun uh, but I think they'd be really fun to work with they've got a timeless brand and I like their uh, just their design values and just values overall so I'm gonna say Audi all right next question your favorite animated film mm, Toy Story nice it's, a, it's an easy choice but yeah it's, it's, sorry you can't it's definitely it's like, hard to argue with I mean it's like I read uh, at Catmull, Ed Catmull's uh, yeah. book, uh, Creative Inc., and it gave me a, just a huge appreciation for the feat that Toy Story was and the the monumental uh, time in the industry. And um, yeah, after just reading about it, it gave me a whole new appreciation yeah. for it. Next question: What do the people you love think that you do for a living? <laughs> <laughs> That's a good question. <laughs> Um, I do do I do do uh, a few different things. Um, I build these spaces, weld for creative pros to work together. I travel and shoot a lot. I think that uh, loved ones would probably say that I'm a. I, I think most loved ones would probably say I, I do a lot of travel photography and I also work to build uh, creative communities. Nice. All right, last question: What animal did you choose for your animal later, and why? Uh, well, not being an animator, I was like, ah, <laughs> oh, man, I don't know what to do here. And I just saw that like little uh, notice like a few minutes before um, this interview. But I was just down in Patagonia, and uh, I was shooting with the iPhone 10 and the Hasselblad. Uh, but um, the Hasselblad's 100 megapixels, but it doesn't shoot motion, or it doesn't shoot animated like like little graphics like the iPhone 10 does. So it happens that I was uh, I shot a live photo of a guanaco, Ooh. which looks like a llama. It is not. The first time I went to Patagonia, I thought they were all llamas, but they're not. They're called guanacos, and I've they're like heard of that. somehow related. Mm-hmm. Uh, I got some pretty interesting shots. Uh, they were like up on a hill against the mountains, and uh, so I like parked the car, and um, 
I like ran up uh, and like they were right on the other side of this hill. So it's like super windy, uh, which is in my favor because the wind was going away from me. So they couldn't, I don't think they could smell me or detect me. And I just peeked up, just, I literally just held my iPhone up over this hill and without even, and I was just like looking at the screen, but I couldn't see the guanaco. I could only, like, it's just my hands like sticking out. And I got really close to them and shot a portrait. And then I also shot some other stuff while moving in the car and they were all live photos. And so you can, uh, the, you can now use the data from your live photos to create little animate uh, like little bounce animations yeah. and loop animations. And so I got a pretty, uh, a couple interesting ones of the guanaco in Patagonia. Sweet. Well, Austin, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks, Zach. Animalators is created by the team at IV, recorded in the Weld Nashville studio, and produced by Chad Michael Snavely. To learn more, visit weld.co and chadmichael.com. To keep up with the work we're doing at IV, visit iv.studio or follow us on Twitter at Identity Visuals. You can also follow Animalators on Twitter at Animalators to keep up with all of the new episodes. And be sure to check out Animalators.com to see every animation from all of our guests. Well, that's it for today's episode. Be sure and join us next time for another episode of Animalators. Curious conversations from the world of animation. Animalators.